Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, November 29th, we're studying Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 to 23. Ezekiel sees a river flowing from the new temple, and he hears the Lord's commands for the division and the boundaries of the promised land. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, Pastor Apple. Pastor Casper, in his commentary on the book of Ezekiel, when Dr. Hummel begins this section of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, he says this, and I've been sharing this with every guest and asking for response and reflection. Dr. Hummel says, from almost any perspective, these chapters are among the most formidable and challenging in the entire Bible. And I think he's right. I'm curious on your thoughts, and and given that this is a rather challenging section of Scripture, how do we approach a text like this? How do we handle it and and use it as Christians when there's some stuff that's kind of difficult? Yeah, so that's... (laughs) It is challenging, but it's also not challenging. I mean, this this is like the text. It, it, it's like the disciples running around with Jesus, knowing that he's the son of God and then not knowing that he's the son of God. Hearing the scriptures, hearing the word of God and knowing that everything is about Jesus and revolves around his person and ministry and worship and, and, and salvation for us, that being the center, the kernel of the scripture, that gives us a lens through which we should look at Ezekiel 47. And though it is a little bit challenging, especially in the types of images we get and the types of things we get, we, we're, we're exposed to here, it is still a clear picture of salvation in Christ and a particular vision of what's happening for us in the person of Christ. And we're going to get into this when we start getting into the weeds here, but there's this wonderful bookend when you have the, when you have the life of Christ in John, Ezekiel 47 on one end and, and Revelation 21 and 22 on the other end. That starts to really congeal all this together for us a little bit in terms of what exactly is being spoken of and how it's not quite so challenging as it might seem on the surface. The The center in Christ has been a, a key theme that has run throughout that question as we've considered it over these various episodes, that even, even when there are details— that are challenging to understand, maybe aren't entirely clear, precisely, you know, measurements, things like that. You know, the center in Christ has always been the key to this whole section. And I think particularly with chapter 47, what we're going to get today is definitely going to point us clearly to Christ. We're going to be digging in a little bit to John and Revelation, as you said. Just the the way that you, you described it reminded me of the of the way that Jesus explains the scriptures at the end of the gospel of, of Luke, where he's, you know, he goes through Moses and the prophets with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and explains how it's all about him. And then the same thing with all the disciples later that he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. And again, that it's all about him, particularly his suffering, his death, his resurrection for the preaching of repentance and forgiveness. And when we have that in mind, we are going to have a much better a much better opportunity to take a text like Ezekiel 47 and use it in a very helpful Christian way. 
So with that in mind, Pastor Casper, as we prepare to look at chapter 47, what should we know about what Ezekiel's been seeing, what he's going to see in this section that's that's going to help us as we prepare to jump in today? Well, Ezekiel, so we've gone through the entirety of Ezekiel's prophecy, and it's, it is just such this long-ranging, full-scope prophecy talking about Israel and talking about the nations and all of these various judgments. And we're finally getting out of that here at the end. You've probably been here now for several weeks at this point, but the hope for Israel in, in chapters, the, the 30s, 34 to 37-ish, and the hope for the nations, 38 and 39 here at the end, we're actually wrapping everything up with a hope for not just Israel and not just the nations, but for the whole of creation. And this is this is getting to resurrection language. A lot of this is very deeply rooted in this resurrection language, which really began in Ezekiel 37 with the Valley of Dry Bones and is coming through and drawing itself into the promise for all of creation, for all the nations, for everything that restoration will come, that forgiveness is for all people, and that that the the picture of Eden, the picture of creation, the picture of harmony, that's what the resurrection looks like. It is being restored to the the nature and the way that God intended for us to be at creation before the fall and being with him in his presence. That's the image of of this this holy mountain, the holy temple, the hill, the gathering together around the throne, all that stuff comes together that way. I, I'm really glad that you said it like you did about the restoration of all creation. You know, we've been looking at this new temple with Ezekiel since chapter 40. There have been a lot of measurements, a lot of technical language. We've been talking a lot about a building and how big it is. Some of the, you know, some of the things that are happening there in terms of the worship, and maybe it, I think it can be very easy to have it almost a, a mechanical view of it. You know, I'm just looking at a blueprint and, and seeing just sort of the, the workings of it. But today we're going to see a river here. And I mean, this has been there. There's People are going to live here. This is going to be a place of life. And it is for people and, as you said, all creation. And maybe that's something that we haven't talked a ton about with Ezekiel and this temple. And maybe it's something that we we forget even in our own you know christian preaching and living that the resurrection is certainly for us as people but this is a restoration of all creation why why do we need to hang on to that why why do we not want to limit that to just resurrection for you and me why do we need to really focus on all creation in the re- at the restoration well part of the thing is that, <clears throat> that we're not gnostics we don't get caught up in the idea that my soul and my body are are uh, put together in an incorrect way. And when I'm freed from my body and death, therefore everything is over and I get to go reside in heaven, floating on a cloud, playing a harp. That is not the physical reality of the resurrection. The promise we have in Christ and the promise we have through the entirety of scripture is physical resurrection. My body, my eyes shall see Christ. Him I will behold, not another. Paraphrasing Job slightly there. But that, that idea that, that the, the resurrection is a real, tangible, physical thing, and then that it's not just me, but the new heavens, the new earth, all of creation. It is the entirety of everything that should be but is not right now and will again be soon. All of that stuff. It doesn't. We're not living in a. We're not living in a in a foreverness with God that is separated from what was before, but rather is corrected and perfected relative to what was before. Yeah, and I think it. I mean, for me, it's also a reminder of the 
the fullness, the completeness of God's redemption and restoration, that everything that Adam's sin messed up, God will restore and then some. So, that, I mean, you think about what what's given there in Genesis 3 and the curse that was spoken upon the land, that all of that is undone, and it's it's made even better. You know, it's not just Eden restored, but it's Eden surpassed. And I think you, you get a feel for that in Ezekiel, and certainly with what we're going to talk about in the fulfillment and the maybe the even more complete vision that John has in Revelation, that that absolutely everything that that was broken by sin, the Lord restores and then some. It, which is, I mean, and that's another thing that we've seen in Ezekiel. When the Lord has an enemy, when something has has broken something he's done, he fixes it and he does it to the full. And so this this river that we're going to see today is going to be a, a big big picture of that, big part of that picture, the the new creation that the Lord's going to bring. Any further thoughts, introductory wise, before we jump in to Ezekiel forty seven? Yeah, I didn't want to dwell too long on this, but you're you hit on a cool point there about the 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 brokenness of creation. That sin not only separates us from God, but it separates all of creation from God. And when we look out on the world and we see disaster and struggle and strife and famine and all sorts of of bad things that happen in the world, what we're seeing is the result of sin in the world. The existence of death in creation is the thing that's broken and twisted what God made for us. And so everything that comes from that, that that is bad for life and bad for humanity, is a result of this sin. And when it is corrected and restored, all of that stuff can only be good. And this this is... I love to talk about this in preaching because it, it, it came up in the uh, in the Brickbees last week about the, the, the wolf and the lamb will lie together and the lion will eat straw and all of those wonderful images we get from Isaiah. That, that image of restored creation where we can't imagine what it looks like when a mosquito doesn't drink blood, when a virus doesn't cause disease, when a lion doesn't, doesn't chase down and eat prey, all these things living in perfect harmony in the way that God created them in creation without death and without discord and strife and without earthquakes and without without rivers that flood and destroy and all of that stuff that is beyond our imagination because we live only in a world that is affected by death and sin. We can't we can't picture what that looks like. And yet that's the promise that we have. Yeah, that's right. Ezekiel gives us a glimpse of that today. So we're we're again we're in Ezekiel 47. We're going to take verses 1 to 12 to get started where Ezekiel sees a river. Ezekiel writes, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water, and it was ankle-deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist-deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. 
for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Enaglim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they are, le- they are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. That takes us through verse 12 of Ezekiel 47, this vision of a river. So, Pastor Casper, there's lots of details that we can pick up here. Perhaps just to make sure we have a, a picture in our minds, what, what does this river look like? What is Ezekiel seeing here? This is fascinating, because this is, this is the reverse of the way that a river works. So what we have is we have a, we have a trickling that emanates from, from under the threshold of the temple, and it appears to be filling the temple because as he walks around the temple, around the around the sides of the temple from the east to the west, he looks and he sees the water trickling out through the bottom of the of the temple on the on the south side. So we're we're having water that's probably filling this space and overflowing. Um, and that's that's a cool idea to have in our in our mind because Old Testament and New Testament water are very water is very symbolic of the blessings that flow from God. And so this this washing, this replenishing, this life-giving thing that water is, that's going to be tied into our understanding of, of Jesus in the New Testament and how we get, in, we get into the idea of baptism being a refreshing and a renewing and a, and a life-giving thing. All that stuff comes together here. But this river is completely opposite of the way that a river should function. It trickles out of the temple, and from there it flows an, an ankle deep. It flows waist deep. It flows so deep that it would wash you away, which is not the way rivers work. Rivers, rivers gain from tributaries, and they come together and add more. But this one has only one source, and it's little bitty source, that little dribble off, almost like the crumbs falling off the table of the master. These, these little dribbles of water are falling off, and they're creating an ever-flowing stream that is so full, that is so full and, and overflowing its banks that it just rushes down towards the Arabah, down towards this this barren land, which is the Arabah is the is the Dead Sea region. Hmm. So, so I mean, that's, well, go ahead, just because there's so much there's so much things, and the the images start to you know have different different. Like we're gonna be talking about the life giving quality of this river, but just before we go there too quickly, the the expanding nature of this river, and I appreciate you know this is like you said, it's not a river that's growing because tributaries. I mean, if you think about say, for example, the Mississippi River at its source is small, and it's much bigger by the time you get down to New Orleans, but that's because water's been added to it from tributaries. Not right. so... I think, you mis- I think you misspelled Brazos just now. Well, there, there are some of our friends who, who are listening in the St. Louis area who, who would think about the Mississippi River, but but yes... Oh, very the, good, very good, okay. For, for you and me, the river, say, that flows from Smithville to LaGrange, it's a little bit bigger by the time it gets to you because there's a little more water that's been added. Not so this river. This river that Ezekiel is seeing is bigger as it goes downstream because it's it's growing. And you you know you mentioned the master's crumbs, the crumbs from the master's table. The, as the way you were talking about it reminded me very much of the way. And I know it's an image of of a plant, but the way Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God being a mustard seed that it start you know you you plant this mustard seed and it grows. And I think that's part of the image here is that it it starts off it looks very unimpressive at the beginning. But as it as it moves, it grows. I mean, and I think that's 
in that way, you see a, a picture of, of the church, much like Jesus parable, the mustard seed. Indeed. Yeah. There's definitely some hay to be made there. That's it is, it is cool how all these images and these metaphors sort of dovetail into one another and, and fit into this neat little, little package that they all function the same way. Right. Growing, flowing flood. So talk more about, you, you said this at the beginning, that water, particularly in the Old Testament, is a sign of a blessing from God. Where, where do we see that in the Old Testament? How does that play into what Ezekiel's seeing here? So we see this in, particularly in Psalms. We find it deeply in the Psalms, but like Psalm 46 is a great spot for this. Um, this is you know the, the mighty fortress Psalm that we all know so well. But Psalm 46, verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Mm. That the, the river is, is the source and the flowing of this, of this place where God's blessings are. 23rd Psalm talks about being led by still waters. And throughout the Psalms, there's so much of this, of this water language that, has, that goes right alongside with, with life and with, and with being made, made glad. Not just gladness in a sense of internal happiness, but also being restored in a sense of, of brokenness and, and being put back together and, uh, and, and death being revived back to life and all that sort of imagery that flows from this, this picture of what water looks like. Um, from the Psalms, it goes throughout the prophets and everywhere else too. But the Psalms are really the best place to look there. Remember that the Psalms are the hymnal of the Old Testament. And so that's the song that's ringing in the ears of the Israelites whenever they hear the prophets say something about water and its saving life. Uh, that, that really just gives them the language that they use. Uh, the reference to Psalm 46, I think, is very helpful in the context of Ezekiel because it is, you know, it's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, that this, this river is not just a sign of sort of like blessing sort of out there somewhere, but it, it goes along with where God dwells. It, and it stems from the place where God dwells from his people. And I think, you know, that connection between the river coming out of the temple, it, you know, it's not just any old river, but this is one that specifically stems from God's presence, where he dwells. And that's been a huge theme for Ezekiel. You know, where is God dwelling? You know, if the temple is is destroyed and he even leaves with his glory, where is he? The fact that there's a river in this new temple is another assurance for these exiles that the Lord is going to dwell with them and he's going to dwell with them in a way that will give life. And I mean, I just, I, I guess I, I hadn't noticed it when in reading in preparation, but it really struck me when toward the end, you know, the, the reason that this water gives such life is because the water is flowing from the sanctuary. It, it's, it's, all, it's not so much about the water itself. Well, <laughs> how can water do such great things, <laughs> if I can ask it that way? It's because of the source. It's because it's coming from the presence of God. And I, I do think that's why Psalm 46, I find it particularly helpful, because it's, it connects this river to God's presence. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and there's so much there's so much great stuff to be had with this water flowing from the temple from the presence of God. Uh, that the 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 healing of Naaman is an, is another one that ties in nicely here because you you've got this co this concept of where does the water come from? Well, surely there's rivers back home that are far cleaner than this in Syria. I can go wash in them and be made clean. No, you can't. This is the water of promise right here. This is the stuff that's been given to you. Go wash here. This water flowing from the temple of God, this is the life-giving water. All other water doesn't give life. In fact, this life-giving water is, is so powerful, it's going to come and overtake the Arabah. It's going to push the death and the salt out of the Arabah and, and make, it, make it live again. Mm. 
that's the kind of, of living water that we're getting from the temple of God, from the presence of God. Yeah, that as the as the water flows and then it it just pushes the saltiness out of the the Dead Sea. Even I mean that's a that's incredible what we're talking about here. If, and if you know anything about you know the geography of this area, to to say that this river is just going to make it all I mean just grow as as we're going to talk about what a what a picture. I mean Isaiah is full of this picture in chapters forty through fifty five especially. And I, you know, the thing about if I can dwell a little bit more on the water in the Old Testament, the the thing about you know, some water in the Old Testament is very destructive. If you think about the flood, think about the Red Sea. Uh, you, I mean, it's it can be a very destructive thing. This water is not destructive, and I think that maybe you know there's a difference in in the thought of like a sea versus say a river. A river is going to be something that's going to give life, and this this river particularly is not going to be one that it sounds like the people need to fear its destructive powers, but rather this is one that's going to, to be constantly giving life. And I think that, you know, again, another comforting part of this image for these exiles there in Babylon. Yeah, there's kind of a, there's a micro and a macro thing here going on too. If, if you look at the, the Dead Sea as the image of all seas, that's where, that's where the water goes to become stale and dead. And also in a bigger scale of that than the, than the sea as a larger concept where the waters roil and foam. That's the, that's the image of chaos. That's the image of destruction. And that's where the image of the flood fits in too. That's the, that is that whole water that is destroying in the sea sort of picture. The other image of this water though is, is really beginning with the spring. That life begins with a spring, the babbling, and then the, from the spring we get brooks and we get streams and we get and we get rivers of mercy, and all of those things are a similar thing. The life giving water, the life the life of water that is moving rather than water that is stagnant, and so those those Old Testament pictures are very different from one another. That the sea looks different than the moving water does. Right, and moving water brings things with it. Yes, that's right. And I think that's, I mean, that's going to be a helpful thought when we when we move toward the book of Revelation in this study. And you think about there's the river there in Revelation, but then there's also no sea. And, and what's the difference in those two waters? I think that's that's a helpful point. Before we get too far there, just something else that you said, the way that, the, you know, the, the waters go to the Dead Sea to die, <laughs> which I've never heard it put that way. But I think that, you know, that's that's kind of the, the progress is that it, as it flows out, it, it runs away and it, it dies. But this water leaves the temple and then gives life, which is, I mean, I think this is related to some of the things we've talked about, the holiness of God that's here in this temple. His desire is for that holiness to be beneficial to his people. And so he's got he's to move it out to, to get to people in a way that won't kill them. And there are certain ways that you can approach God's holiness and you can receive it in a good way. And then if you go the wrong way to God's holiness, you'll be zapped. You'll be you know, fried. And, and I mean, I think this, this picture of the river going forth and giving life is another example of, of what God's end game is in all of this. He's working to bring his life, his holiness to his people in a beneficial way. And as we've talked about when it comes to the holiness of God, how that comes to us in a life-giving way rather than, rather than an destructive way, that always happens in Jesus. And, and the same thing is true with this river. So let's let's try to start making, I mean, we got a little bit of time here before the break. I know it's going to carry over, but let's, let's start making some of the connections here to Jesus when it comes to this river. 
Sure, yeah. So we're going to find, and, and you'll have to help me here with some of these John references we were talking about a little bit beforehand, but there is, there's an awful lot of John and water language that is really going to give us this connection between where we are in Ezekiel and where we're going to end up in Revelation in terms of that water stuff. There is obviously, there's the very end of it all. There is Jesus on the cross, pierced side from which water and blood flow, giving birth really to the church. That the, yeah. that the forgiveness of sins comes to us. Here, we, here you are. This is this is how forgiveness comes. He's going to speak about himself being living water, and all of this all this language comes together, revolving around the idea that the life givingness of water and the imagery that we have in the Old Testament is really the picture of Jesus, which we now see in fleshed God in fleshed in human form in front of us right now. This is God, and all the blessings that are imagined in water are coming from him. Mm. And so that's the source of all of this stuff. This is the actual temple, the temple of Jesus' body, and the water emanating from him here in, here in Ezekiel, that's the temple. The water coming from him is the same water, and it's the same source, the same blessing coming out there as we find in John. That's right, that's right. And again, I mean, we've said this several times during this the course of this study on these chapters, that Ezekiel is seeing this in Old Testament images, because that's where he's living. But he's seeing New Testament realities. And, and John, I think, of the four evangelists, John is the one that really makes this plain. And it, I mean, I, I think it's related to the fact that he's, you know, he's, he sees the revelation. And there's, and I, this is maybe just a side point, but I've, I've read that perhaps John actually saw revelation and wrote revelation before he wrote his gospel. And then his gospel perhaps is influenced by what he saw. And I, I, again, that's, that's maybe a, a discussion for a whole different study, but I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that thought. It makes a lot of sense because if what he saw in Revelation influenced the way he wrote it, uh, I think I think it fits. So you mentioned already, Jesus' body is the temple. So I mean, and that's when we think about John's gospel and how this connects to Ezekiel. That's where we got to start. I think is Jesus says that he's the new temple, and then from there, over and over again, Jesus is connected to water, and and the places where it's most prominent would include John chapter 4, where Jesus is at the well with the Samaritan woman, and he, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then again later in John chapter 7, Jesus is is at the, the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, and on the last day of that feast, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And, and that really culminates, you know, who is this one? Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, first, that's Jesus. And as you said, you see that very, very vividly on the cross when water literally flows out of him upon his death, giving birth to his church, to those who also have this living water. One, one bit of, I suppose, irony in all of this is how does Jesus provide this living water? Well, it's by actually he, what does he say in, earlier in John 19? He says, I thirst. The, the river of living water, it looks like for a moment has, has dried, and yet he hasn't. He lives on the third day. And so all of this is, is, I think, John making some connection to us in the ministry of Jesus in his death and resurrection that's really going to come full circle and full flower in the book of Revelation. And we'll go there on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. We're talking Ezekiel 47 with Pastor Jason Casper. We'll be right back. Please stick around. 
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. KFUO is a listener-supported radio ministry that needs your support to continue. When you partner with KFUO, you are proclaiming Christ worldwide. November 30th is Giving Tuesday, a day that encourages you to give back in whatever ways you can. Giving Tuesday presents a perfect time each year for you to support your favorite nonprofit organizations, including KFUO Radio. To give to KFUO, call 314-996-1518 or text KFUO to the number 41444 or give online at kfuo.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, November 29th. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 to 23 with Pastor Jason Casper. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, prior to the break, we were making connections between this water, this river that Ezekiel sees flowing from the temple, and Jesus. John does this very much in his gospel, and that then really comes full circle and full flower in the book of Revelation, where this river is seen in even more glorious light. So take us into to Revelation and the connections between especially Ezekiel 47, but also John as, as you're able. So go ahead. Sure, sure. Yeah, so well, first let me back this up to Ezekiel. So what we see in Ezekiel is we, we see the river that is flowing from below the threshold of the temple. It's flowing south. And as it does, it flows south and along the bank of this river, which becomes an ever-flowing flood of a river, there are many trees on one side and on the other. It flows down into the Arabah, enters the sea, and pushes the salt out as if it's pushing the death away. And then all of a sudden there's going to be uh, many, many fish that are there. And this, wherever this river goes, there is, there is life. And then the trees, uh, their leaves never wither. Fruit never fails. They bear fresh fruit every month. And this is because the water that flows from them flows from the sanctuary. And their food and their leaves will be for the healing, or for healing, rather. That's the, that's the image we have coming out of 40, Ezekiel 47. Coming into that, Revelation 22 has a very similar picture. And there we see, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, for they will need no lamp of light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That image there contains this river, this, and, and I, I think it's hard for us to hear those and think of them as different rivers. This, this is clearly the same image, the same picture. The river flowing from the throne of God, which is the same sort of picture we get in, in Ezekiel, that it's, it's coming from the sanctuary, from the inner place where God is. But in Revelation, there's no temple. Mm. Now we only have the throne of God, and the temple is all of creation. Everything is restored, and that's the whole. It's the, the Garden of Eden is supposed to be the throne room, the temple of God. There isn't, there isn't a need to enclose God's glory anymore. Now God's glory can only do, do good to us and can't possibly harm us because we're free from sin and the resurrection. 
So that's that's a different image there. This river also, instead of having the river flowing and having trees on all sides that are sprouting their fruit, here we have a, a picture that's, that's also really a weird thing to get our minds around, but a river that flows with a tree that grows on both sides, one tree growing on both sides of the river. Okay, work that one out in your mind the best you can. <laughs> Right, and so that river flowing through with the tree on both sides, now we have the fruit, the 12 kinds of fruit. And this one tree has its 12 kinds of fruit, and the purpose is sort of left out in Revelation, as if we no longer need to be fed. We're being, we're being fed by the lamb, and there isn't a need for this. But the function of the leaves is still a very cool picture. The, the function of the leaves is for healing in, in uh, Ezekiel, and in Revelation it becomes healing for the nations that there is a sort of enfolding. And I think that, that ties into the many kinds of fish picture that we get in Ezekiel also, that there is this idea that it isn't just the nation of Israel here that's being blessed by this river flowing from the throne room of God from the very throne of the Lamb, but rather this is blessing all of creation, and this is restoring all of creation with this fruit, with, these, with this life-giving water, with these leaves for the healing, and this tree of life, which is, it, again, can't, can't hear that tree of life without hearing the tree of life in the garden at the same time. And, and, and remembering that in the middle there is the cross upon which Jesus died, which actually brings and gives us life and salvation. That tree of Jesus' death is the tree of life for us. And so all those pictures, we have to mingle them all together in our mind and have that stuff together. When we hear the words in Ezekiel, when we hear the words of John in Revelation, those, those pictures all need to be together right up front. Uh, I mean, I love how these these connect with, you've got Ezekiel here, and I mean, Ezekiel, he, I've said it this way before, he's got a foot in both Testaments with this vision. You know, he's, he's seeing it in a very Old Testament way, but he's also seeing what John sees, and, and John sees the fullness of it because he's seen what Christ has done on the cross. And I mean, just connecting the dots from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Jesus' death and resurrection, to this eternal Garden Revelation, Ezekiel stands in the middle of it as, I mean, just part of that huge vision. And and if, you know, we were talking at the beginning with the quote from Dr. Hummel of the challenging nature of this section, this is definitely one of those spots in this section that you just can't miss. You need to know Ezekiel 47 because it, it helps connect so many dots. I want to talk a little bit more with you about the fish. And I think I think the point you made about this is one of the the pictures that this temple, this dwelling place with God, is not just for Israel according to blood, but it is Israel according to faith. That this includes Gentiles who also believe in the God of Israel. And I think I mean we're going to see that I think in the the second part of Ezekiel forty seven. I think the fact that these are like the fish of the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, is a sign that oh wait a second, these aren't just the the regular everyday fish we'd normally find in the Jordan River. These are from I mean, all kinds of exotic fish, I'm sure, are in the Mediterranean Sea. I've never been there, but I would imagine there's all kinds of, of fish. And so, yeah, this this idea for the nations. The the part that I'm I'm curious your thoughts on, because I've I've thought about this before, and I'm not sure precisely the connections to make, but the fact that there are fishermen in in this, is this should we connect this to Jesus calling his apostles to be fishers of men, do you think? I, I don't think there's any harm in doing that. I, I think there's it's better to find more connections to Jesus than fewer, in general. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of a lot of hay to be made there. That that this this is sort of setting up the groundwork for what Jesus is going to say when he makes his disciples fishers of men. That they will already have this image in their minds of the many kinds of fish 
that are coming and being brought into life in the in the the rivers of the temple flowing out and, and bringing life to it um i don't think there's and i don't think there's any shortage of, of value in in interpreting the the overpowering of life conquering death here too the fish of the of the sea of the great sea they're not going just anywhere. They're not going into the Sea of Galilee. They're not going to the Jordan River. That's going into the Arabah, into the Sea of Death. And while that while that water of life is pushing death out, it's bringing with it and or reviving to life that which is in this Dead Sea and bringing life back to this place and this, these many kinds of fish. Some of that might, that's, we probably should think of that as if some of this is the stuff that was dead and has been restored now out of the Dead Sea. And then that this this all kinds of fish is the full picture of of Gentiles and Jews enfolded in faith in Christ. And again, I, I don't think Ezekiel had any concept of where he was going with this. The word was the word was given to him and he and he he gave us the, the prophecy. We get to see the fulfillment of it better, not fully, <laughs> but better from our end. Right, right. Yeah. And I think I mean, I do think there's the connection with the fishers of men. And and I think it, the connection you're drawing to the to the mission to all the nations to, you know, preach the word to all nations, whoever they may be, that I mean, that's that's definitely connected. And again, my mind goes also to the image of the mustard seed that Jesus speaks of that grows into this tree. And there the branches are provide a home for all kinds of birds. And I think it's a similar idea here. It's just we're talking about fish that live in rivers instead of birds that live in trees. But the same thought that in this church, which draws its life from Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, that is a place that brings life to dead sinners. I mean, that, that brings to mind the way Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but it's by grace you have God's life. And I mean, I think that too is, yeah, the the death that we would have in our sins, God brings life through this, through himself. It's just a beautiful picture. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's, it is a great image and it's so fun to have to find this in the Old Testament, lying in places where we don't always see it. Because this is this is kind of a, a corner of, of 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 Ezekiel, especially that we don't find on the Sunday morning reading list anywhere, even in the even in the three year lectionary as you all use there at Grace. And so it it isn't something we hear often enough to have in our minds in in have in the picture of what we understand. In fact, I think I think all of the pericopes end at like Ezekiel thirty seven, Valley of Dry Bones. That's as far into Ezekiel as anything goes. I think you're right. And yeah. So, so we're sort of we're missing a big chunk of of the completion of that vision. We get the front end of it, but we don't we don't get the rest of the the full restoration stuff here at the end, which is glorious imagery. Man, it's awesome stuff. That's right. Yeah, you take that when you take the time to to understand it in its context and then put it into the full context of as we've done all the way from Genesis to Revelation. This text just is so glorious. I think and we've we've maybe danced around this. We've probably mentioned it in passing, but I don't think we've made the the very explicit connection then. We're talking here about life-giving water, and we really can't do that without talking about baptism. So how how does this text give us a picture of what the Lord does for Christians in baptism? This is great. This, this is... Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, I'm just trying to figure out where to start, right? I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like a four-year-old trying to relate Disneyland to you in simple words. You, you can quote Pastor Casper on that. Baptism is great. <laughs> this image, this picture of baptism, takes us away from, the, disabuses us of the knowledge that we are somehow playing a part in this baptism. 
this water, this life-giving water flowing from the temple of God is a picture of what baptism is for you and for your children. It flows from God and gains steam as it goes, bringing the power of forgiveness along with it and washing sins off of you and dropping faith as it goes. This giving of the, the, the life-giving restoration that water has, which takes something that is dead in sin, revives it to life and brings it back, and then continues to flow, doing the same thing as it goes, all the way down, bringing life where there is death and eradicating death and wiping it out along the way. Yeah, I mean, I That's think exactly the image of baptism. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I, you know, I think I, I asked earlier, how can water do such great things? And I mean, that's the third part of baptism in the small catechism. And on the one hand, well, you know, how can water do such great things? It's not the water; it's the word of God in and with the water. And here, this temple, the reason this river is life giving, is not because of something inherent in that water. But the source, it comes from God's presence. So it is with baptism. It's not something particular about the water of the, the Colorado River that runs from here to, to there or, or any other river. Right? It's about the power of God's word. And yet, as you said, with when it comes to, to Naaman, you know, he couldn't be healed in the waters back home. He had to go to the Jordan River because it was that water that the Lord had attached his promise to. And so it is for baptism. You know, it's not about where the water comes from. It is about the word of God. But because the word of God has been attached to the water, we treasure that gift of what baptism is. And we don't forsake that water. We make use of that washing of water and word, as you said, for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's who the promise is for. Yeah, and that that picture of baptismal waters, the the Jordan imagery is kind of a kind of a cool thing to mix in there too, because the Jordan is also a place where sins go to reside. Mm. As the people of Israel cross the Jordan into the Promised Land, and their sin is left behind them in the in the wilderness, when Naaman goes and washes, when Isaiah crosses the river, when when all of this bit that all this stuff that happens around the Jordan, it is it is as if sin is being accumulated there. And then when Jesus comes to be washed there, the sin comes onto him. And that that image, too, is is part of how this whole picture of water giving life should should work in our minds, that that it isn't just because water is a good thing, but it's because it comes with the word and promise of Jesus. And attached to that word and promise is death. Jesus' death, which actually pays for and conquers sin, that's what that's what gives this water its power. The word and promise of Jesus that his death is enough to conquer and destroy sin and take yours away also. Mm. Well, and I think that, I mean, that takes me back to John's gospel again, where the Baptist cries out, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away takes the away. sin of the world. And that's that's connected to Jesus' baptism there in the Jordan River. And then it's just a couple chapters later in John's gospel where Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless someone is born of water and the spirit. I mean, there's, there's baptism again. And those, those connections of what Jesus does through the water and word, you see it in Ezekiel, you see it in John's gospel, you see it in Revelation. It's all over the scriptures, the power of God in the cross of Christ given to you in baptism to wipe that sin away, to give you his holiness and his life, the healing for the nations. Uh, it's such a, a glorious picture. Pastor Pastor Casper, any, I mean, there's, there's so much here in these first 12 verses. I do want to make sure we catch the rest of the chapter, but any final thoughts on this section with the river that Ezekiel sees before we move on? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of this, but the swamps and the marshes that get left salty. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure if that is, if that is that the, the salt still seasons life and gives, and gives, gives spice to the life, or if this is an image that, that there is still separation from God and that it's going to be permanent and won't be restored by the water. I'm not sure exactly where to go with that, but that's a curious little bit along the way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, and, and I wonder, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. One is, well, the, the Lutheran Study Bible notes suggest that salt would have been used in certain sacrifices when you look in Leviticus 2. And so perhaps, you know, this is a new temple that Ezekiel's seeing. Salt is going to be necessary there, and so that's, that's part of that. And, and maybe connected to that thought, this would be another example where Ezekiel is seeing, he's not seeing everything that John gets to see because he still is, is living on, on that side of Christ, looking forward to the coming of Christ. And this is one of those examples where, where he's seeing something in those Old Testament terms, not getting the fullness of the picture that will be made clear in Christ when he comes, and then especially for John in the Revelation. So that's, that's the best that I can make of it. I know it's, it's, a, little, it's a little curious, uh, but that's, that's the way at least that I try to wrap my brain around it. Yeah, that works. I, I can see I can see both of those being useful, and and I hadn't considered the Leviticus thing, but that that makes very good sense. That especially for the Jews returning from exile eventually, which they're not here yet, but they will be. Clearly, we we still need salt. So here's there will be some. There's still a little salt for you. You can still you can still use it as you need. Right, and it's I mean it, that that note certainly doesn't deny any power to this river. It's not like oh the the river's not able to do that. No, that that's not the point. <laughs> the the point right, is it's just it. They need it. It's restrained. It's not gonna. That's right. That's right. It's just not going to be that way. That's right. I, I think that's the way to take that. So let's, we got about 10 minutes. Let's take the rest of the text. This, what we're going to read here in, in verse 13 and following really is going to bleed over into chapter 48. This part is going to talk a little bit about some divisions within the land, but it's really going to be more about the boundaries of the land as a whole. And then chapter 48 is going to talk at much greater length about how the land in those boundaries is going to be divided. But they do really go together. So what we're picking up today is going to continue into tomorrow in chapter 48. So Ezekiel 47, beginning again at verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, This is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, and you shall divide equally what I swore to give to your fathers. This land shall fall to you as your inheritance. This shall be the boundary of the land, on the north side, from the great sea, by the way of Hethlon, to Lebo Hamath, and on to Zedad, Berathah, Sibriam, which lies on the border between Damascus and Hamath, as far as Hazar Hatikon, which is on the border of Hauran. So the boundary shall run from the sea to Hazar Enon, which is on the northern border of Damascus, with the border of Hamath to the north. This shall be the north side. On the east side, the boundary shall run between Haran and Damascus, along the Jordan between Gilead and the land of Israel, to the eastern sea, and as far as Tamar. This shall be the east side. On the south side, it shall run from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribah Kadesh, from there along the brook of Egypt to the great sea. This shall be the south side. On the west side, the great sea shall be the boundary to a point opposite Lebo Hamath. This shall be the west side. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. 
in whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. That takes us through the end of Ezekiel 47. That was verses 13 to 23. So, Pastor Casper, I think there's a, at least a couple of things we can talk about. Obviously, the names are difficult, and we can't always pinpoint these places. But generally speaking, what we're getting here is the boundaries of Israel and a little bit of information about who's going to get an inheritance. Again, a lot of that's going to be fleshed out more. What are some of the details we need to pay attention to here? Well, there's one right at the very front. By the way, you deserve a round of applause for, for battling all those names and doing such a nice job with that. <laughs> that was not an easy task. <laughs> Say it confidently. Case, that's right. <laughs> We're going to make a mistake. Do it boldly. So right at the front, Joseph shall have two portions. And, and that's that's useful for us to remember in the way the land, the land is allotted in the first place. The tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim, the, the, the dual split tribe of Joseph, we get that because Levi gets no land grant. Levi serves in the temple of the Lord. It seems apparent here that in this vision, there are still temple servants, that the temple is still going to be functioning, and, there, and therefore we'd still apportion the land the same way. We have the 12 tribes of Israel, which is actually 11 tribes split into 12, and there's a 13th, which is functioning as this, as this service of the Lord in his temple crowd. So that's clearly a part of this vision of the big a big issue here, hmm. right? And then, if I can sorry, just briefly, I mean that's one of those places where there's there's continuity for Ezekiel in the Old Testament way that he sees this. Now there is some discontinuity as well, and I think that's it's one of those places where you know, okay, Ezekiel's seeing this and it's good, but there's fulfillment coming too. So the the continuity discontinuity that's here is is definitely part of it. Keep going. Yeah, and then I was just going to point out that the the four directions are are also always in place here for Israel, that we always have the north, the south, the east, and the west, and that everything is is bounded in those directions, the four winds of the earth. When we come into the New Testament, we have that same expression, and there it's, it, it's reversed the other way. For Israel, those boundaries are, are to contain the enemies and keep them out. For the New Testament church, those are the directions to which the Spirit goes. The Spirit goes in the four directions to the four corners of the earth and is unbound and unheld without walls, without boundaries. He just goes where he wills and where he where he wishes. Hmm. But those directions establish the center. It comes from here and it goes out there. Man, I like that. Parameter. I like that. I like that. One one of the I mean, when it comes to the boundaries, I I do think just the fact that God gives boundaries to his land is a reminder that he is providing a secure dwelling place for his people. That's That's been a part of—we go back to chapters 38 and 39 and this this great battle that Ezekiel sees of, you know, with Gog of Magog and, and everything. By the end of it, the Lord has established a secure dwelling place for his people. And so seeing here, you know, boundaries to the land is a reminder— you are dwelling in a safe place where the Lord is going to dwell with you. That's going to come up in chapter 48. But I, I do like that. You know, the, the boundaries here, and yet in the New Testament, we see going from here out in those same directions to all places, which I think connects to this curious detail you get at the very end of the text about these sojourners. Wonderful stuff. Man, that's good stuff. So this, and this is also going to tie into uh, to Revelation again. The sojourners bit, so you shall divide the land among the tribes, and there will be inheritance for yourselves, and the sojourners who reside among you have had children. That's amazing stuff. This this idea that the sojourners and their children are going to be folded into Israel, and not just into Israel as like a 14th tribe category, but wherever they reside, that's the tribe that they will be part of. 
you get folded in directly into the people of Israel, not in the exclusive way of the Old Testament, but in the modern, the in modern, the inclusive way of the New Testament, that everything gets brought into the house of God, and that the Lord is the thing that that makes us members of this body, members of this family, makes us makes us ethnically children of God, mm. that our ethnicity is decided by His choice. Yeah, yeah, and it, th- it reminds me of, and maybe this is where you're going to go with Revelation, but it reminds me of Revelation 7, how on the one hand, in the first part of Revelation 7, you see John hears the numbering of the 12 tribes of Israel, but then after that he looks, and he sees a countless multitude from everywhere, from every nation, language, tribe, etc., and maybe I don't, maybe that's where you're going to go. That's where my mind goes. You, you mentioned the book of Revelation. Take us, take us there from the Sojourner text. That's also where I would go, but I would actually go. I would also go. I would also go to chapter twenty, uh, chapter twenty-one. So here we find on the chapter on chapter twenty-one the the spirit of God, and we're looking out on the gates and the tribes, right? So beginning around verse twelve or so, it has a great high wall, twelve gates, and the twelve angels and the gate names on the gates are the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel that were inscribed on the east three, on the north three, on the south three, on the west three. And the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles and of the Lamb. So the, the picture in Revelation is, is, again, it's an inversion of what I would think I would expect to see. I don't see the 12 tribes of Israel as the foundation upon which the gospel is built. No, the gospels, the, the apostles, are the foundation that the tribes of Israel rest on. And then these same gates, the same city, 12 gates facing in the four directions, they never close. Day and night they are open. This this fortified safe haven for us from our enemies is no longer necessary because all the people are coming in. All the countless numbers of folks that, that, that John saw in chapter 7, they're flowing in through these open gates, coming into the throne room of God, which is the fullness of the resurrection in his in his in his temple, in his, his marriage feast. And the the gates almost have no purpose anymore because they they only serve as a as a walking in door and that's all they are. Mm. Everybody just comes running rushing in. Pastor Castro, we've got about two minutes left on the morning. Reflecting upon Ezekiel forty seven again, remind us what we've seen and help us to see in it Jesus. Jesus is the water. Always think that way. The waters of baptism, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus, the death and salvation we receive because our uncleanness goes on to Jesus, who dies a death to sin for us. This is the water that flows from the temple of God, from the throne room of God, flows through the holy city, goes through the tree of life, or whatever that image looks like. All of this stuff is here to just give us the same picture, that the life-giving, life-sustaining blessings of our God who loves us and wants us to be with him come from the side of Jesus and wash away our sin and make us his own and make us his children. Pastor Jason Casper is pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas, helping us today with Ezekiel 47 verses 1 to 23. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me again, sir. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. The series on Ezekiel concludes tomorrow, and after that we will start a series that will take us through epistle readings for the season of Advent. So you can grab your Lutheran study Bible or your hymnal, take a look at the lectionaries in the front and those Advent epistle texts. If you have any questions about those, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. 
or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.